Welcome to day four of Bureau 42's comic book podcast pilot season. We're doing a podcast a day for two weeks to try out seven different ideas for comic book podcasts. And at the end of those two weeks, our listeners get to vote on which podcast series continues, or in the case of some of the finite runs, which one goes first and what will follow. So today is the first pilot episode for Golden Age Greats. In this series, I look back at Golden Age comic books that have fallen into the public domain, and I'll be getting all of these from www dot digitalcomicmuseum.com, which has some great stuff, and they do the legwork to ensure that everything they post really and truly is in the comic domain. They are primarily in CBR and CBZ formats, but there's a number of free readers out there that let you read these formats, so that in itself is not an obstacle or, or an issue when it comes to reading the content. Now, for the first two weeks, we are going to be looking at issues I chose myself. If this continues, the issues would either be chosen by reader request, or they'd be chosen by some sort of spreadsheet randomizer. But today we're looking at the first issue of The Spirit, which was published in 1944. Now, The Spirit first appeared on June 2nd, 1940, in a daily newspaper strip. And it wasn't until 1944 that they started collecting some of these strips in the comic book format. Now, this comic doesn't actually tell the Spirit's origin story. So, going back to Wikipedia and checking that, I'm seeing things that are consistently referenced in here, but they don't tell the story if you don't already know it. So, Detective Denny Colt was facing off against a villain named Dr. Cobra, one of Dr. Cobra's experiments went wrong and put Detective Colt into a state of suspended animation. He was declared dead. When he woke up a few days later, he realized that maintaining the fiction of his death would enable him to fight crime without putting loved ones at risk, so he decided to do that, became the spirit, and set up a hidden lair under Denny Colt's gravestone. I chose the spirit as a subject because I've heard that it is a very influential series, not just because of the content, but because of the way creator Will Eisner wrote and drew the stories, and how he just pushed the art form forward in general. And we're seeing a lot of that. I'll run through the stories that are in this issue, and we'll get to some of the things that referenced it, one of which really surprised me when I sat down and started reading it. Notice the parallels, but we'll get to that. So as is common for 1944, comic books were 48 pages each, with very few ads. This particular one has six stories of eight pages each. So there are no ads inside the book, or even outside. It's just straight-up reprint. And again, that was a common format for the day. So the cover shows a hint of the spirit's origins. It's got the spirit coming out of a hidden staircase right by the grave of Denny Colt, with Ebony White just behind him, who's a supporting character that we'll get to in a minute. The first story is called Wanted for Murder. Grace Gilbert is a government agent who shows up at Police Commissioner Dolan's office looking for the spirit. She's got a mission for him that Commissioner Dolan is not allowed to listen to. He doesn't have the clearance for it. So she kicks him out of the room before she can give the spirit the mission. She's stabbed in the back. And her dying words are a clue for the spirit, specifically the name Bambro, and the numbers 18 and 4, or actually it's a little bit more than that. It's 18, oh, 4, so the O oh is there as one of her dying sounds. And the cries from that attack bring Commissioner Dolan and some of his others running back into the room, and it feels because Grace Gilbert is a government agent, he's got to do things completely by the book, hold the spirit, and charge him as a suspect, even though he doesn't really think the spirit did it. Instead, the spirit manages to escape out the window and shouts his leads back to the commissioner on his escape. He follows the leads to Bambro, 
and gets captured before he can learn anything new. Meanwhile, back at the station, Spirit sidekick Ebony White and Dolan's daughter Ellen insist that the Spirit must be innocent. Now, Ebony White is probably the hardest thing to read in these issues these days. Every bad caricature and stereotype of African Americans is right here all in one. The art style is more simian than homo sapien. He's got big white eyes, huge pink lips. You look at him and you don't see an adult human being. And even his first dialogue on the page is, But Miss Dolan, Miss Spirit can't be guilty. And that's M-I-S-T instead of Mr. with an apostrophe. Instead of can't, it's C-A-I-N-T. So it's really designed to be can't. And there's a lot of, you know, bad education, bad grammar, bad spelling in all of his dialogue. It is a little bit of a mixed bag. All the characters treat him with complete respect, and he does prove himself to be a very capable sidekick, but he plays into every stereotype that some people considered funny in the day. I am glad we have outgrown that. It is painful to read that now. Anyway, so the spirit has been captured by Bambro and his sidekicks. His sidekick admits to killing someone and that they're going to hand the spirit over to the police and he's going to be the one going down for the murder. So they basically spell out their plan and announce what's going on. Now the spirit is able to knock the guy out with a kick to the chin even though he's tied to a chair. He bounces the chair over to the fireplace and says, well, that's one of the good things about heat rationing because this was a wartime comic. There's a lot more open flame and he uses the flames to burn off the ropes. And instead of leaving... He searches the house, finds a counterfeit operation, creating fake 1804 silver dollars to sell to coin collectors. Because the Louisiana Purchase required virtually all the silver dollars made in 1804, these are exceptionally rare coins. So Bambro was using more than a dollar's worth of silver to fake these silver dollars to sell to collectors. So Bambro's thug tries to kill the spirit using a a knife-throwing device, basically a knife gun. But Ebony White is right there with a slingshot to save the spirit. All of this plays out in front of Commissioner Dolan, who's been brought by Bambro to pick up the spirit, because Bambro was trying to cash in on the reward for him, not thinking, hmm, this is a detective who's found his way to my lair and has asked me what's going on with the murder of this girl. He can put us together. That all gets completely ignored. So not a terribly thrilling or threatening villain for the first appearance. But we get a good feel for who the characters are and how they interact with each other. We just don't see a lot of the spirit and Ellen. Together, we can kind of guess that they're romantically involved from the way she tries to defend him, but that isn't really spelled out until later stories. The second story is Tony Zacco, Public Enemy Number 1. In this one, wanted killer Tony Zacco escapes justice by enlisting in the army. Again, this is a World War II comic, and the spirit heads up to the front lines to bring him back. So Zacco has changed his mind about a few things now that he's in the army. Says that it changes your mind, and it... You realize what's really important. He ends up giving his life taking out a Nazi stronghold with the help of the spirit. So in the process, he convinces the spirit that he really was a changed man. So this one ultimately ends with his criminal pseudonym staying on the books as, you know, a suspect in an unsolved case. And he's buried using his real name to report the death of a war hero. So it's a decent little story, but very much a World War II propaganda story. The third story is Dressed to Kill. And this one has sexism that's almost as bad as the racism that we see with Ebony White. Uh, It's got very unusual panel placement for the first page here. The three panels at the bottom of the page to set it up that are formatted like they could be a daily strip appear to have been cut out and deliberately put it in funny angles just to make it a little more interesting to look at. So that type of innovation that Eisner is famous for is already starting to come through in this issue. This is one of the few comics from the 1940s that doesn't feel like it was designed to be chopped up. 
and reprinted as a daily newspaper strip because, frankly, at the time, that's where most of the money was. It certainly was created that way, but they did enough when they're varying the way it's laid out on the page that it's not terribly obvious that they're doing it that way. Now, there's a bit of sexism in the first page here when Commissioner says that he raised his daughter in the family tradition because he didn't have a son and that family tradition is to be a police officer. So it is a strange mix because on the one hand, they're trying to be progressive by saying that, yeah, there's a whole group of female police officers now because with the war effort, a bunch of the men have gone out that way. And Ellen Dolan is the sergeant in charge of this entire unit. So that part is a big step forward, but the way they handle it and the way they set it up just doesn't pan out. On this first page, it may be less sexist than average in 1944, just based on the media that they've been exposed to. I have no personal experience from things that happened over three decades before I was born, but it's still not great. Sadly, it gets much worse. So Ellen sees a woman going down the street in a truly ducky ensemble and follows her to find out where she bought it. The woman gets on the phone, and Ellen just sort of waits for her to get off the phone before she can ask. The woman on the phone has recognized a policewoman is following her, so she's calling someone saying, hey, they must be on to us. And she chloroforms and kidnaps Ellen. Now, the spirit in Ebony White see this because they've been following Ellen, expecting her to run into trouble with this new position. So they follow the kidnappers. And when they get there, Ellen... She's been kidnapped, she's being held at gunpoint, she's tied to a chair, and she's still just thinking about, where can I get a dress like this? That's all she's putting together. She doesn't even realize there's anything really wrong with it, saying, of course I didn't tell the spirit, why would he care? Of course I'm not telling any of my, my other female friends, or the other female detectives, because, you know, she wants to be the only one wearing this dress. It's just bizarre. Anyway, the spirit shows up, sees a pile of money, and realizes, oh, these guys are the bank robbers who stole this much money from some bank. And then Ellen puts it together and they start going through. Now, they do show her capability. Ellen's the one who subdues the woman who was in the dress. They had tried kidnapping the spirit, so his hands are tied behind his back. And Ellen recovers a gun from one of the other guys. Instead of shooting the guy the spirit is fighting, because, you know, he'd be upset if she took that fun away from him, she uses her sharpshooter skills to shoot the ropes off his wrists without hitting him, which, again, that's progressive showing that she has that type of skill with a weapon for 1944. So they end up wrapping everything up, and as they're going through, Ebony calls in Dolan to bring the man cops, not the lady cops, because, you know, they need the real cops to help wrap this up. Everyone gets captured, it's arrested, and when they're trying to get them to talk, Ellen says, oh, I can get this woman to talk, takes her into the side room, and the spirit and Dolan walk in to hear how she's doing it. When they realize she's made a bargain, she'll get this woman a reduced sentence if she spills the beans on the condition that she tells Ellen where she bought that ensemble. So again, it's back to, ooh, fancy clothes, where'd you get them? Which is a frustrating level of sexism. It's it's one thing if that's just what caught her eye and then she did good police work and realized this is what's going on, especially since she was raised as an officer. It's something else when it's this pervasive and it takes so long to clue in that there's anything wrong. And the last possible minute should have been when she was chloroformed and captured. Because, I don't know, again, I wasn't alive in 1944, but I doubt chloroform was something the average law-abiding citizen carries around with them. Uh, story number four, A Clock Stops. So Dolan's friends with a clockmaker who dies and wants to make sure he gets a decent funeral. We get a bit of a crack from Ebony saying that any man am entitled to at least one decent funeral, you know, which would be a nice touch. And you get a good facial expression on the spirit as he's whistling and trying to play down his origins that clearly Ebony knows about. But just using am instead of is, to me, blows the whole joke. Anyway, a man who wanted to buy a valuable clock from this guy rigged it to poison its owner so that he could claim it later. As soon as the hands were set to midnight, a poisonous syringe would shoot out. So Ebony and the spirit realize something is wrong because they smell almond off it and they recognize that's a sign of the poison. 
Ebony even hides inside the clock to solve the mystery before the spirit when a man comes to claim it. And Ebony's actions are enough to preserve the evidence inside it when the guy who came to claim it tried to destroy the evidence of the device he jury-rigged to kill the man. They end up proving that the clockmaker's death was murder and arresting the murderer. Story 5 is The Eye's Habit. So a man named Evil Eye has a hypnotic stare and he uses it to make a boxer lose a fight. We learn that the spirit has a home in a graveyard here. It's the first time it's mentioned. We don't see how he gets in and out. He's just in the lair, says, I'm going to go for a walk. And then he's out walking through the graveyard, which is his home. So the entry and exit points are not well laid out. He ends up stumbling across a deal with a payment made to Evil Eye by a fight manager and realizes, okay, this fight that Ebony was listening to on the radio saying it didn't go well, something's fishing here, and the spirit dismissed it, well, it, there was something fishy. He tries to bring him into the police, but Evil Eye hypnotizes him as well. So when Evil Eye ends up bringing them to a bunch of his partners instead, they see him with the spirit and think, oh, Evil Eye has double-crossed them. A fight breaks out. Meanwhile, one of the boxing managers has come to Commissioner Dolan saying, I think Evil Eye was involved with this. we got to check it out. So Dolan shows up just in time to see what's going on. Evil Evil Eye releases the spirit from his hypnotic stare because there's no way Evil Eye can fight these guys off and they won't make eye contact with him. He needed the spirit to help fight so that he'd not get killed. He ends up admitting everything in front of Commissioner Dolan so it all gets wrapped up. The spirit goes back to his lair where he and Ebony White apparently both live and Ebony makes a comment about how that was such a long walk and the spirit goes, oh yeah, I guess I just got caught up in a daze and kept right on going. So again, it's it's a trope now. I don't know how much it was then when you have the adventure story that ends on the pun or the joke based on a setup right at the beginning, which if something is being published in a daily newspaper format might be a nice way to stamp the start and end of a story. Right, and the sixth and final story in this first issue is Manhunt. So two seemingly great guys are killed for no apparent reason. The spirit and Dolan are trying to work it out, and the spirit encourages Dolan to forget the police handbook and just go with his guts and emotion for once, because we're not going to find logic in this kind of killing. Another man comes in afraid he's going to be next, and he explains that both he and the two murder victims have dated the same girl, and that she's been flighty, sometimes pretending not even to recognize him, pretty moody. The spirit and Dolan go to see the girl and find that she's being assaulted by a man whose nickname is Yellow Eyes, and Yellow Eyes escapes out a window. When they hear the sounds of the attack earlier, Dolan tells the spirit, go, you're faster, don't wait for me. So the spirit goes charging up the stairs. Dolan is downstairs, and when Yellow Eyes jumps out the window, it's Dolan that's able to catch him on the street. He ends up shooting Dolan and escaping down a manhole. The spirit checks on Dolan. It's not in good shape for him, but there's nothing he can do for him, so he goes after the guy he thinks is going to end up as Dolan's killer instead to make sure he comes to justice, brings the guy in. The spirit and Dolan both end up in the hospital, and when the spirit says, oh, you should leave that police handbook behind, that didn't really help you in this case, and again we get that little joke calling back to the beginning of the story when Dolan pulls out the police handbook and says, are you kidding? If the bullet hadn't gone through this first, the doc says it would have killed me, and it's the police handbook that saved his life. Yeah, it's a pretty common joke now. I don't know if it was cliched in 1944. So we do see some influence that Will Osner's spirit has had on the rest of the industry right here. As I said, it's the earliest instance I've seen of unusually arranged panels. On top of that, we've got a structure and a style of storytelling and a style of art that really sets things apart in the long term. And there's a lot in here that has been taken and used in other cases. We've got the domino mask that he's wearing. We've got the trench coats, the fedoras, and something I found out about later, something I was hoping to find in one of these issues, were early stories of the octopus, who is, I guess, the archetypal spirit villain. Now, from what I found, this comic book collection series published its last issue in 1951. The octopus didn't appear in the daily strips until 1952, so he wouldn't be 
in any of these comics. And they do have most of them over at digitalcomicmuseum.com. I think for this run, they're only missing issue 13. They've got the other 20-something issues for the entire set. And they are free and worth reading. Just be ready for what you're going to see in the way they treat Ebony White and Ellen Dolan. But as I said, the influences are pretty clear. For example, with the octopus, one of the things that makes him stand out is we never see his face. He's basically a voice, and all you see is a distinctive style of glove on his hand, usually on the armrest of a chair. That's why it's being reproduced in the current Spirit Rocketeer Pulp Friction miniseries through IDW. At the time of this recording, only three of the four issues are out, but they are great. Written by Mark Wade, art by Paul Smith or Jay Bone, depending on the issue. Some variant covers by Chris Somney. Wonderful stuff. Highly recommend picking that up. It's not free, but it's worth it. And that was my first exposure to the octopus. That's what drove me back to see these. And I'm looking at this. What we have is a detective who became what he is after an experiment gone wrong. He's got a female sidekick that is intelligent and helps solve some cases. He's got another sidekick who's right there with him most of the time and who is often underestimated based solely on outward appearance by the people around him and the, the people he encounters. We have the chief of police or the commissioner of police right there to help him get his missions and figure out what he's going to be going after. And we have a villain who's basically a voice and a distinctive glove coming from an armchair. Now, if anyone else like me grew up in the 80s, that pretty much sounds like the template for Inspector Gadget. This is aimed at an older audience. To have the sidekick that everybody underestimates based on looks in the 80s, they made him a dog instead. Not because they're equating African Americans to dogs, but because they realize African Americans at this point should not be treated any differently than people of any other skin color. And they just, you know, eliminated the romance angle by making the female sidekick his niece and, you know, help make her more identifiable to the kids in the audience, because apparently producers often have, and still do, believe that kids can only feel like they are connected to characters who are also kids. I don't get that. I was a kid. I don't remember imagining I was one of the kids in the stories. I remember imagining I was one of the adult heroes, but anyway. I mean, that's certainly not the only place that the spirit has had influence, but the template is right there. And that's such a huge piece of my childhood, I just had to mention it. Inspector Gadget is basically a redressing of the spirit. Okay, well, that's what we have to say about the spirit. So please join us again next week as we sit down and go through Silver Streak Comics number 6, which is the first appearance of the Golden Age Daredevil. And join us again tomorrow for the first episode of Daredevil's Advocate. And this one will guest star Adam Graham of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, the Old Time Radio Superman Show, and the War Podcasts, as he and I debate which is the greatest comic book character, whether it's Daredevil or Captain America. Remember to follow along for two weeks, and then vote for your favorite podcast on December 7th. Meanwhile, Thank you for listening.